Welcome to the March 9th, 2023 episode of Blood Podcast, your source for innovative ideas and cutting-edge information. Our topics are based on articles published in Blood, a journal of the American Society of Hematology. First on today's podcast, an imbalance among RUNX1 isoforms is key to the pathogenesis of trisomy 21-associated myeloid leukemia, raising the possibility that equilibrium could be restored genetically or pharmacologically. Up next, an RNA aptamer demonstrates promising results in patients with hemophilia A. It binds von Willebrand factor, and in a phase 2 study, it doubled endogenous factor 8 levels and tripled the half-life of substituted factor 8. Finally, phase 2 data on valimetostat, a selective inhibitor of EZH1 and 2 in relapsed or refractory adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma. This oral agent, which was recently approved in Japan, had encouraging efficacy and acceptable safety in this single-arm study of heavily pretreated patients. Let's start with a research article entitled, RUNX1 Isoform Disequilibrium Promotes the Development of Trisomy 21-Associated Myeloid Leukemia. The first author is Sophia Gialasaki of Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany. Gain of chromosome 21 is one of the most common alterations found in childhood leukemias. However, understanding of how this aneuploidy contributes to the development of cancer is limited. We know that children with trisomy 21, or Down syndrome, have a high risk of developing leukemia. About 10-20% to of neonates with Down syndrome will develop a preleukemic syndrome called transient abnormal myelopoiesis, or TAM. And in about 20% of cases, TAM will progress to MLDS, or myeloid leukemia of Down syndrome. So what fuels this progression to leukemia? TAM has been linked to somatic mutations in GATA1 that encode a shorter isoform, called GATA1S. Researchers have utilized a variety of experimental approaches to identify other alterations that promote the stepwise progression from TAM to MLDS. Trisomy 21 itself has been implicated in the evolution of TAM to MLDS, though its exact role is still opaque. Several chromosome 21 genes have been reported to play a part in leukemogenesis, including ERG, DDYRK1A, CHAF1B, and MER125B. Now, Giolisaki and co-authors report in blood on the role of RUNX1, a chromosome 21 gene that is often mutated in hematologic malignancies. They find that RUNX1 is indeed implicated in TAM to MLDS progression, but not in the way that was expected. Rather than being due to an increase in genomic material due to trisomy 21, the culprit was an increased ratio of one RUNX1 isoform over another. The investigators started with CRISPR-Cas9 screens of chromosome 21 to identify oncogenes that may be contributing to TAM and MLDS pathogenesis. Of 19 genes identified, RUNX1 was found to be the most specific MSDL dependency in subsequent flow cytometry assays. This was unexpected, investigators say, since there has been considerable controversy over the role of RUNX1, with some previous studies disputing its role in either TAM or MLDS. RUNX1 transcription can initiate from two different promoters, and it also undergoes alternative splicing, resulting in three primary isoforms, RUNX1A, B, and C. RUNX1C is the most abundant isoform in definitive hematopoiesis, while RUNX1A and RUNX1B are expressed differentially throughout hematopoietic development. Next, researchers looked specifically at the three main isoforms of RUNX1. They found that expression of RUNX1A was elevated in MLDS and trisomy 21 cell samples. 
Consequently, those cells had a significantly higher ratio of RUNX1A to RUNX1B and C when compared to healthy hematopoietic cells. Subsequent investigations revealed that this bias toward RUNX1A was pivotal to leukemogenesis in trisomy 21. They found RUNX1A acted together with GATA1S mutations to block differentiation of megakaryocytes and accelerate proliferation of progenitor cells. Interestingly, these effects could be reversed by restoring the balance between RUNX1A and RUNX1C, according to studies in murine models and patient-derived blasts. At the mechanistic level, the studies show that in contrast to RUNX1B and C, RUNX1A fails to work in concert with GATA1 and GATA1S to regulate megakaryopoiesis. In addition, RUNX1A had an increased affinity for the MYC cofactor MAX, suggesting a central role for MAX in the pathogenesis of MLDS. Investigators were able to validate that by genetically interfering with MAX expression. Furthermore, the authors proposed dependency of MLDS on MAX may be a weakness that can be pharmacologically exploited by interfering with MYC-MAX dimerization. Specifically, a MYC inhibitor called MYC-I361 had strong anti-leukemic effects, inducing apoptosis in cell lines and in MLDS blasts obtained from three patients. In a commentary on the results, Sebastian Melinge of Telethon Kids Institute in Australia said the present research article provides compelling evidence that MLDS blasts are dependent on RUNX1 and that disequilibrium in RUNX1 isoforms plays an oncogenic role in this leukemia. Melinge said the findings may have broad therapeutic potential even beyond MLDS. As further reported in the study, blasts derived from patients with other subtypes of AML were susceptible to inhibition of MYC-MAX complexes, including blasts from non-Down syndrome acute megakaryoblastic leukemia and KMT2A rearranged acute leukemia. As such, Melinge said further research is needed to determine what mechanisms promote RUNX1 isoform disequilibrium in non-Down syndrome cases and how they work together to drive leukemogenesis in other settings beyond MLDS. Altogether, results of this study could pave the way for developing targeted therapies for MLDS or other leukemias that exhibit chromosome 21 aneuploidy or RUNX1 isoform disequilibrium. The next research article is entitled Von Willebrand Factor Binding Aptamurondaptivon Pegel as Treatment for Severe and Non-Severe Hemophilia A. The first author is Sion I of the Medical University of Vienna in Austria. We know hemophilia A is caused by a deficiency or functional defect of coagulation factor 8. Patients with severe hemophilia A are at high risk of recurrent joint bleeds. That leads to joint damage, inflammation, and eventually to disabling arthropathy. The frequency of bleeding goes down as endogenous factor VIII levels go up, but even patients with moderate or mild hemophilia are at some risk of arthropathy. A cornerstone of bleeding prevention in severe hemophilia is regular prophylactic administration of factor VIII, but that's expensive and can lead to development of factor VIII inhibitors. Factor VIII also has a limited half-life that hinges on how quickly its chaperone, von Willebrand factor, gets cleared. Multiple extended half-life factor VIII concentrates are a step forward in treatment of severe hemophilia. Yet due to the issue of von Willebrand factor clearance, they only extend half-life by about 50%. There's also a licensed non-factor therapy, emicizumab, though cost is a barrier to use, particularly in developing nations. For non-severe hemophilia, Therapeutic progress has been slower. 
Treatment still largely relies on the von Willebrand factor, factor VIII releasing agent, desmopressin, and on-demand factor VIII replacement therapy. That leads us to rondaptivon pegol, a von Willebrand factor binding optimer. In a previous study of healthy volunteers, rondaptivon pegol was well-tolerated and increased plasma levels of the von Willebrand factor, factor VIII complex, by fourfold. Rondaptivon pegol is a methylated RNA optimer conjugated to a 40 kilodalton polyethylene glycol, or PEG. The optimer component binds to the A1 region of von Willebrand factor. Pegylation dose-dependently reduces clearance of von Willebrand factor by the macrophage low-density lipoprotein receptor-related protein, or LRP1. It's thought the large hydrodynamic radius of the PEG molecule interferes with LRP1 binding. The goal of the present study was to determine if the increased plasma levels of von Willebrand factor factor VIII seen in healthy volunteers receiving rondaptivon pegol would be beneficial in patients with hemophilia A. The authors performed a phase two basket trial conducted at the Medical University of Vienna between January and May of 2021. The study included patients with factor VIII deficiency without inhibitors. Patients received subcutaneous rondaptivon pegol at three milligrams on days zero and four followed by weekly doses to 2 to 9 mg until day 28. Weekly blood sampling continued in the follow-up period, until day 56. The primary objective of the trial was to evaluate the safety of subcutaneous injections of rondaptivon pegol and its effect on factor VIII levels. A total of 19 adult hemophilia A patients were enrolled, including 8 mild, 2 moderate, and 9 severe cases. Patients ranged in age from 20 to 62 years, and four were women. In the patients with severe hemophilia A, six doses of rondaptivon pegol increased the half-life of five different factor VIII products. Median half-life increased from 10.4 hours to 31.1 hours. In mild hemophilia A, median factor VIII increased from 22% to 48%, while in moderate hemophilia A, median factor VIII increased from 3% to 7.5%. The geometric mean half-life of rondaptivon pegol was 5.4 days. No antibodies to rondaptivon pegol were detected in any samples analyzed, suggesting that it is not immunogenic, similar to other aptimers. Treatment with rondaptivon pegol was well-tolerated. There were no specific drug-related events, no serious adverse events, and no thrombotic events. That's also typical for aptimers, which are large molecules that typically exhibit minimal nonspecific side effects. Looking back at the study of healthy volunteers, some gingival bleeding was observed in patients who received doses as high as 48 mg each. By contrast, the current study had doses no higher than 9 mg, and this pharmacologic event was not seen. Some bleeding was observed during the current trial, but none of the events were thought to be related to rondaptivon pegol treatment. Although these results are promising, larger and longer studies are needed to fully characterize the therapeutic potential of this RNA aptimer in hemophilia A. The study's 28-day treatment period, along with the dose escalation, was insufficient to reach a steady state. Authors estimate that about 90% of the plateau effect was reached, however, based on data from the Phase 1 study and results from individual patient data in the trial. Altogether, results presented in this research article demonstrate that in patients with hemophilia A, the first-in-class pro-hemostatic molecule rondaptivon pegol extended the half-life of substituted factor VIII by approximately threefold and increased endogenous factor VIII levels approximately twofold.
finally, let's turn to a research article titled An Open-Label Single-Arm Phase II Trial of Valimetostat in Relapsed or Refractory Adult T-Cell Leukemia Lymphoma. The first author is Koji Izutsu of the National Cancer Center Hospital in Tokyo, Japan. Adult T-cell leukemia lymphoma, or ATL, is an aggressive T-cell subtype that has a particularly poor prognosis. ATL, which arises from T-cells infected with human T-lymphotropic virus type 1, or HTLV1, is endemic to Japan, where it constitutes up to 30% of all T-cell lymphoma cases. ATL is also endemic to Australia, Africa, the Middle East, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. Patients with ATL have few treatment options. The first line of treatment is multi-agent chemotherapy. However, responses are typically not durable, and median survival is less than one year. Allogeneic hematopoietic stem cell transplant can be considered early and upfront for aggressive ATL. However, more than half of transplanted patients fail to achieve long-term survival. New agents have emerged for patients with relapsed or refractory ATL. In Phase two studies, these agents have produced overall response rates ranging from 50% for the anti-CCR4 antibody mogamolizumab to 42% for the immunomodulatory drug lenalidomide to 30% for tusidinostat, a histone deacetylase inhibitor. However, responses are less frequent in aggressive ATLs, and overall, patients continue to relapse, underscoring an unmet need for new therapies. One recently investigated agent is valimetostat tosylate, a selective dual inhibitor of enhancer of Zest homolog 1 and 2, or EZH1 and 2. In a phase 1 study in the US and Japan, valimetostat 200 mg daily was active and had acceptable safety in patients with relapsed or refractory non-Hodgkin lymphomas, including some ATLs. Accordingly, Izutsu and co-investigators undertook a phase 2 study of valimetostat 200 mg daily in patients with relapsed or refractory ATL. Since both the article and commentary were written, valimetostat has received regulatory approval in Japan based on this trial data. The multicenter single-arm open-label study included 25 patients with cytologically or pathologically diagnosed relapsed or refractory ATL and antibody-confirmed HTLV1 infection. They received oral valimetostat 200 mg daily until progressive disease or unacceptable toxicity. All had received previous treatment for ATL, with a median of three lines of prior therapy. The median age was 69 years. The primary endpoint of the study was met, with an overall response rate of 48%, representing 12 out of 25 patients. This included a complete response rate of 20% and a partial response rate of 28%. Responses were observed across disease compartments, ATL subtypes, disease status after previous treatment, and exposure to previous drugs. Among patients previously treated with mogamolizumab, the overall response rate was 45.8%. The median duration of response was not reached, although preliminary, the median progression-free survival was 7.4 months and median overall survival was 16.4 months. Treatment emergent adverse events were manageable with supportive care or dose modification. The most common of these adverse events were cytopenias. Thrombocytopenia was the most common severe treatment emergent adverse event of grade 3 or higher, and thrombocytopenia often resolved without dose reduction or interruption of treatment. In a commentary, Dai Jihara of the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston said this trial provides hope for patients with advanced disease. However, Chihara said, readers should be cautious in interpreting the data as to whether the findings would apply to typical patients with relapsed or refractory ATL. 
In the phase 2 study, the median time since last treatment was 60 days and up to 1400 days. The median number of lines of prior treatment was 3, and more than 90% of patients had an ECOG performance status of 0 or 1. Chihara said the typical course or presentation of symptomatic and often treatment refractory patients with ATL may differ from participants in the trial who could wait for the treatment and who did not have a declining performance status. It's hoped that the activity of this agent will be confirmed in Valentine PTCL01, a global study of valimetostat in peripheral T-cell lymphomas as well as ATL. In addition, Chihara said that there is a need for clinical trials to evaluate combination strategies that could further address unmet need. For example, the combination of valimetostat and lenalidomide could work synergistically. However, one large barrier to research is the geographic distribution of the disease. It has been challenging to conduct research in non-endemic areas, including the U.S. and Europe, where most new drug development takes place. Accordingly, Chihara said, Global collaboration will be key to facilitating clinical investigation. You have been listening to The Blood Podcast. For a list of additional authors, as well as more detailed articles and commentaries on which this podcast is based, please go to bloodjournal.org. Be sure to join us next week for another episode. Thank you for listening.